This is America on the Road, named best radio show by the International Automotive Media Conference, and now in its 29th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. Fans of big SUVs, and that is most Americans, will be happy to learn that Volvo has just introduced a battery electric three-row, seven-seat vehicle. We'll give you the details on the 2024 Volvo EX90 later in this segment. And as we told you last week, inventories of EVs are piling up at dealerships around the country. And that has led to a price war between two major players. We'll tell you who those players are and how much you could save a little later in this segment. America on the Road is brought to you by drivingtoday.com, yourtestdriver.com, emlancy.com, the publisher of my latest book, Dance in the Dark, and Mercury Insurance. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury. So imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at drivingtoday.com slash auto insurance. That's drivingtoday.com slash auto hyphen insurance. Please use that hyphen. I'm Jack Nierad. With me is co-host Chris Teague, editor of yourtestdriver.com. Chris, did you have as much trouble getting back to work after vacation as I did? Yeah, you know, it's been over a week now, and I still feel like I should uh, be just sitting by the pool. I don't really want to do any work, so uh, but that could also be, you know, the heat and a lot of other things too. Yeah, well, I'm right with you. You know, I came back, and now it seems like it was just a couple of weeks ago, and it seems like months ago that I was on vacation and you know paddling around in my little kayak in the morning and hanging around in the lake and all that stuff. But I miss it. There you go. I miss miss having two of my girls with me, too. Uh, two of my daughters live back in Texas, so there you go. But uh, enough about the NERAD family. As you longtime listeners know, Chris lives at one end of the country. I live at the other. Each week we get together talk about cars, the car industry, and how you can get the most money for your automotive dollar. Of course, we review a couple of cars each week. And uh, coming up a little later, the federal government is set to rule on a General Motors request to deploy self-driving vehicles on the nation's highways as they test the technology. And you have probably heard the phrase, when you're hot, you're hot, and when you're not, you're not. Well, that certainly applies to some of last year's hottest-selling EVs. How do Americans feel about electric cars? Well, a lot of people have opinions, but J.D. Power has data from real consumers. And our special guest this week Stuart Strop, Executive Director of EV Intelligence at J.D. Power, will tell us all about it. Interesting stuff to say, I think. And of course, reviewing cars is one of the things we do best. Chris, what vehicle would you like to talk about this week? I spent the week hauling my family in relative luxury in the 2023 Hyundai Palisade. Well, very nice. I had a luxury three-row uh, crossover. I, not exactly a crossover, I guess. It's a, more of a traditional SUV. Uh, the 2023 Infiniti QX80. So we can talk about three rows when we come to the road test segment, which is coming up. But uh, let's dive into the news. And the news, actually, the lead story in the news is about a, a new three-row SUV, but it's electric, and it's one of the first ones uh, to come to market, a three-row. It's the 2024 Volvo EX90, a seven-seater electric SUV, a lot of horsepower, a lot of torque. You're a Volvo owner, I think, Chris. Uh, what's your take on this vehicle? We actually own an XC90, uh, the T6 generation or the T6 powertrain of the previous generation. You know, I think uh, they've done a really good job here, you know, translating the gas XC90 to an electric uh, styling, electric platform. And they've added enough sensors to keep this thing on the road almost by itself. So I can't wait to see what kind of capabilities it has. Yeah, well, one of the capabilities is going fast. It's going to have close to 500 horsepower, probably a range of around 300 miles, which uh, should be good. I mean, 
Is this something that uh, you would consider for the Teague family going forward? We're already considering it. Uh, I think the price is going to be a little bit of a barrier for us, uh, especially, you know, in the 80,000 range, I think is what we're expecting it to be. But uh, yeah, my wife is, she she actually mentioned it to me one of the one of the first times she's actually brought a car up to me instead of vice versa. So uh, I think we will eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Of course, three-row vehicle. I'm not certain you need a three-row vehicle, but probably so. Probably be useful for you. And uh, a lot of people love the three rows. This is a seven-seater. That has some advantages, doesn't it? It does. And we, um, so we only have two kids, but we frequently take other friends and, and, you know, dogs and people places. So uh, I will say that the XC90's third row is more spacious than it appears on paper. It's actually quite comfortable back there. Uh, I wouldn't want to ride back there forever, but uh, I can't, you know, again, this is a great, great addition to the three row segment here, the, the EX90. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing it and driving it and spending time with it and all of that stuff. I'm a fan of Volvo vehicles anyway, so uh, as you are, obviously. Well, let's talk about this uh, electric vehicle price war. Uh, we predicted it last week. We've been predicting, actually kind of predicting it for a while. We've sent some softening in the market. Now it is uh, come home to roost where Ford is cut prices pretty significantly, uh, 17% cut in price for the base F-150 Lightning pickup truck. I mean, that's a big drop in price. And uh, I think the last couple of weeks we were talking about how Chevrolet is with the Silverado has gone up in price. Pretty fascinating news, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I you have to temper this a little bit, though. You got to keep in mind the Lightning Pro originally started at under $40,000, right? It was a $39,000 truck to start. Then uh, it reached into the 60s and we're now coming back a little bit. But I'd say any downward movement in prices for EVs is good news for buyers. Yeah, the base price of this uh, base vehicle is 49995 plus, of course, destination. So that's a big cut. It had been $59,974, very close to a $10,000 price drop. And then the Platinum model, which I think a, a lot of people will gravitate to because it has a lot more stuff, will be 6.2% less in terms of... Uh, list price at $91,995. These are still fairly stiff prices, but what do you think the the reason for this is? Well, you know, they, they're catching up with production. Ford itself said that they're, they're kind of overcoming some of the supply chain issues that they had, and they've actually been building more capacity, so they're maybe getting some of that online. But uh, it looks like the industry is finally kind of crusting that hill of the supply chain issues that we've had over the past couple of years. Ford actually said they uh, were able to cut prices following improvements in scale and battery raw material costs, which may or may not be exactly true. I'm not saying they're lying, but I'm not saying they're necessarily being very straightforward there because Ford's EV sales fell 2.8% in a rising market recently. So uh, there have been some pricing actions. And of course, uh, Tesla got some uh, publicity this past week, uh, almost simultaneously, uh, by starting up some kind of production of its Cybertruck. So maybe not coincidental. What do you think? Well, I think we're still a long way off from seeing Cybertrucks on the road. Um, I, and the one image they showed was covered up by people. They didn't actually show the vehicle. So uh, we'll have to see. I'm still a little skeptical that we're actually going to get you know a fleet of Cybertrucks on the road. But I can, I've always been, I've been wrong a lot of times in the past. Yeah, uh, maybe someday. I mean, it's interesting when you introduce a vehicle to the marketplace and then years go by, multiple years, may, it will be close to five or six years, I think, maybe before this hits the road in any kind of numbers there. I'm talking about the Cybertruck. Ford has temporarily con uh, closed its Rouge Electric Vehicle Center to change it over and do some things. Uh, they want to build up to 150,000 Lightning trucks there at some point, but... Uh, Shutting that down with inventories piling up is probably not the 
such a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the longer those cars sit around, the more money that the dealers have to spend to pay on the floor plans and everything else. So I think it's probably good that they slow down a little bit. But um, at the same time, Jack, you know, people couldn't walk into the dealership and buy an F-150 Lightning. So if there are, if there is inventory, I think that's probably good news for people who want to go buy it and the lower prices don't hurt, hurt yeah, at all. Yeah, exactly. And maybe some room to deal finally on these things. Uh, well, here's uh, something that is not electric car oriented or at least directly electric car oriented. And that is General Motors request to uh, test self-driving cars on the road, asking NHTSA, asking the federal government uh, for permission to do that. They want to deploy up to 2,500 self-driving vehicles. And these vehicles are very special in that they don't have controls that can be operated by humans. They don't have a typical steering wheel brakes, stuff like that. And so even if you had a, a human riding <laughs> riding along supposedly as the driver and monitoring things, there's not much they could do if things go wrong. What do you think the, uh, the government is going to say about this? Well, as you were saying that, I was remembering the driver's ed cars from when I was in high school. There was an extra brake pedal on the other side, yeah. but they didn't have a steering wheel. Uh, you know, these are big. This is a big deal. Like nobody, I'm gonna say nobody, but there's a big conversation around who takes liability or who is liable if something somebody gets in a crash. Uh, is it the person who's monitoring the car and doesn't have a steering wheel, or is it GM or whomever else made the vehicle? I don't know what they're going to come down on this. I know that some uh, companies are testing in like California and maybe Colorado or somewhere else, but yeah, Arizona I think is a big testing ground for uh, self-driving vehicles these days. But uh, it, it'll be interesting. This is not a new request from General Motors. They actually filed this petition in February of 2022, and in typical fashion, the government has slow walked this thing. But they say they will issue a decision in the coming week. There's certainly safety issues and concerns about this stuff and the fact that they're being tested, quote unquote, I think prompts more more concern than anything. Yeah, you know, I think I'm a little bit more confident in having a trained professional testing these vehicles, like an engineer who helped design those systems in the first place rather than kind of placing this out in the public for them to test on, on public roads, among other people. I mean, we like to see progress on this front. I mean, self-driving cars is something a lot of us have been looking forward to in, in a long, for a long time. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> the government will decide. Well, when you're hot, you're hot. And when you're not, you're not. That is true about EVs. And EV registrations are, are up uh, for the year. But a lot of that is just coming from Tesla. Some hot-selling vehicles of last year from Ford. Lightning, among others, uh, you know, Mustang Mach-E, Kia EV6, and Lucid, Lucid Air, not doing as well as they did last year. I, I was a little amazed at the the hype that built around these vehicles last year. You look at the EV6 and even like the Hyundai Ioniq 5, like these were pretty groundbreaking launches. They're a pretty big deal. And so they built the hype up. You know, I don't know. It's a year later. People are not quite as excited about it. There are other options. You mentioned Tesla. The prices are coming down for Tesla and some others. So uh, I think there are probably a variety of factors. Cadillac and Porsche EVs not doing all that well either. In fact, near the bottom of these 25 brands appearing in the registration data that's monitored by Experian. At the same time, EVs rose to 7% share of U.S. light vehicle sales for the first five months of the year. That's up from 4.6%. Still a long way from 60%, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we got a long way to go. <laughs> right. Well, uh, we have a long way to go in this program, including some road tests. And we have the road test of the Hyundai Palisade and the Infiniti QX80 coming up when we come back. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Red with you. And thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Chris T. We're so glad you're with us on America on the Road. And if you like the show, uh, please pass it on to somebody else who might like it. Uh, the gift of Chris Teague and Jack Red 
in their mailbox somewhere. Uh, there's nothing. They might on. need to move. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. People like the show, so that's a good thing. And we like road testing vehicles, and you were road testing the Hyundai Palisade three-row family SUV. Talk about it, would you? Yeah, Jack, I, I talked about this vehicle last year and, and expressed how much I liked it. The Hyundai gave it a refresh for 2023. I guess I should say a mid-cycle refresh. So it got a facelift and some you know updates to the interior, um, which just made it better. I think it's, it's even better now than it was before, just to kind of blow the whole spoilers on my review here. But uh, it starts at around $37,200, I think, is the base price for the SE trim. I tested the calligraphy, which is the top trim out of the five that are offered. And it comes in just shy of $52,000. And that's a little bit more than what the Hyundai Palisades original price tag was, but it's still pretty reasonable among uh, sort of higher end three row SUVs before you get into the, the premium brands. Uh, Hyundai equips a 3.8 liter V6 jack. This car, this vehicle has 291 horsepower and can tow 5,000 pounds. That's the same powertrain that goes in the Kia Telluride. And have you driven it recently? And what do you think of it? I have. I think I have driven the facelifted version. I liked it. I have always liked it. I think it's a good vehicle. It's a matter of taste on exterior style and interior style. They are two different vehicles, the Kia Telluride and the Hyundai Palisade. <laughs> you can't mention one without mentioning the other, I guess. But uh, I've always been a fan of the Palisade. I agree. And I think they've done enough to give the two vehicles an their own sort of uh, personality. And the Palisade, I actually prefer the Kia Telluride styling. The Palisade has been a little polarizing, I think, with its vertical LED lights in the front and everything. People, uh, Some people love it and some people don't. And I'm kind of I probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, however, on the inside, this is where people... People are going to spend all the time and all the money on this vehicle because this is an actual this is a family hauler so it's three rows seven seats it has second row uh captain's chairs you can get a bench there but the captain's chairs as we've talked about many times jack provide a little bit more room between kids especially if you you have kids who like to kind of poke at each other on longer trips uh leather upholstery in the calligraphy trim heated and ventilated front seats uh the third row seat here is not quite as spacious as i would like i'm six feet tall now here's where we talk about my height for the third row, not the front row seat. Uh, and I had trouble, a little bit of trouble climbing back there and moving around. However, uh, it wasn't too bad. And uh, I think I would, you know, not want to take, take a long trip back there, but I think I'd be good for a few runs around town. Uh, so I mentioned leather upholstery. This vehicle has a really nice interior design. It's very easy on the eyes. The thing that I don't like about it, and that I think some people will probably find a little bit confusing at first, is the push-button gear selectors. Uh, there's no knob. There's no rotary. There's like four buttons on the dash for park, reverse, neutral, and drive. Uh, and that takes a little bit of getting used to, but once you're into it, it's totally fine. Um, Hyundai equips a 12.3-inch touchscreen and a 12.3-inch digital gauge cluster. Uh, you got Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. you got HD Radio, Sirius XM Radio. Uh, there's a rear seat quiet mode. So one thing that I liked is that we took our kids on a shorter road trip this past weekend, uh, turn on the rear seat quiet mode, and I can listen to my podcast in front, and they could have their iPads on in the back seat and have no problems there at all. And you also have plenty of USB ports throughout. So you've got two in the front, two, I'm sorry, three in the first row, two in the second row, and then you have one uh, in the way back as well uh, if you have that uh, option equipped, which the calligraphy trim does come with. Uh, wireless charging, head-up display, everything in this vehicle. Uh, we talked a lot about Hyundai's infotainment in the past, Jack. I don't love it as much as I do Ford Sync or Uconnect from Stellantis, but it is very easy to use. Uh, what do you think about the Hyundai's, uh, Hyundai's infotainment system? I like it, and I, I like the simplicity of it. Uh, it doesn't force you to go through multiple screens to do a lot of things. It doesn't force everything into the screen. Uh, which I think is also valuable. So uh, I think they've done a pretty good job with it. Good. And uh, you've got a full suite of safety features here as well. you got forward collision warnings, automatic emergency braking. 
Uh, the higher trims like my calligraphy also have the blind spot camera monitoring system, which I really like. Um, you know, you still need to look over your shoulder, but you have blind spot monitoring that alerts you to vehicles that are there. And then you have a camera view that pops up in the gauge cluster that shows you the blind spot for whichever direction you've turned the turn signal on. So all around, Jack, I think this is a fantastic family vehicle. I think the price, even though it's gone up a little bit, is still not that bad at 52 grand for everything you get with this vehicle. Um, and I absolutely recommend it. Yeah, a good one, a good one. Well, I was driving a similar vehicle from a, a um, I guess, one step larger and uh, not a crossover, but a more traditional body-on-frame, truck-based SUV. The Infiniti QX80 kind of performs the same purpose, though. I mean, uh, hauling a three-row family hauler, in this case, a, a, from a luxury brand. This isn't the newest of the vehicles in its class, but I think it might be one of the most cost-effective. Plenty of luxury here. Uh, they lay, ladle on the luxury, especially in the interior, uh, to separate it from the Nissan Armada, which is based on the same platform, virtually identical under the skin, but uh, or under the skins if we're talking about leather here. But good stuff. It dates back to 2011 uh, was when this version of it was introduced, which kind of tells you if you have the vehicle right uh, when it's launched, uh, it can have longevity. I don't think it's outmoded in any way. There's there's some things where you see it's a, a little bit long in the tooth, but it's a very solid vehicle. has a 5.6 liter V8 engine. It can tow up to 8,500 pounds. And interior seating for, uh, interior is a great place to sit. <laughs> uh, you don't want to sit outside on this thing. Uh, interior, uh, very nice. And seating for up to eight people. So uh, very useful. It gets a, a few new things for 2023. Uh, Amazon Alexa. My daughter is a big fan of Amazon Alexa. She uses it to set alarms when she's cooking, which strikes me it's not that hard to set an alarm, but uh, I guess it's harder than just saying, Alexa, call me in 10 minutes or so, whatever she does. There's haptic steering wheel feedback to the lane departure warning, which I guess is useful. Gives you a, another little buzz in the hands that... Uh, that's happening. Comes in three levels, Lux, Premium Select, and Sensory. We had the Sensory model, the full boat, $91,000 as tested version. But you can get this vehicle at about $75,000, and it has a bunch of good stuff. I think uh, the Nerad family would be quite content with the $75,000 version with the 12.3-inch touchscreen, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, although wired, uh, adaptive cruise control. It has leather seats, of course. Uh, heated front seats, you know, good stuff. Second row captain's chairs if you want them, although you can get a three across second row. Good stuff. 13 speaker Bose audio system. So $75,000. I think that's a, a darn good deal for a luxury SUV. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's not badly priced. I also think Nissan's done enough to keep it competitive in the segment. That V8 engine is a sweetheart. It's absolutely, uh, it's a great engine. It's the only one you can get. So you get standard V8, which I don't think uh, many other uh, many others offer, if at all. Uh, and also the interior. This thing is really nice. I love the the QX80s, uh, the finishes, the leather. Everything looks great inside. Uh, you know, I think gas mileage you suffer a little bit, and it is a little clunky to drive. It's a giant SUV body on frame, but uh, overall, I don't think it's a bad choice at all. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's as clunky as maybe some of the others in its segment either, because it it drives small. And you've talked about this with some pickup trucks. It it drives smaller than it's than it is, I guess. Uh, is the way to describe it. You might also wonder, well, what do you get for the uh, sensory that, as tested, is $91,000 and 
Uh, it has a base price of 86. Well, you get an upgraded interior where you have higher quality leather. You have more wood trim and it's, it's kind of cooler. Ventilated front seats, 17 speaker audio, stuff you can maybe do without. It also has hydraulic body motion control, which I guess adds something to the overall drivability. Certainly it had good drivability. I like the vehicle a lot. So plenty of pep. Actually, pretty good handling for a three-row SUV of, of this size. I just, I, I like this vehicle a lot. Again, not the newest, but it does, uh, it checks all the boxes. It, it tows a lot, 8,500 pounds, has great interior, good-looking car. Nobody is going to get really excited about fuel economy of any of the vehicles in this segment. 14 miles per gallon in city, 20 miles per gallon on the highway, but you're not buying a a three-row luxury SUV and worrying about gasoline. At least you probably shouldn't gas costs. So overall, I think it's a pretty good take. Uh, what do you think? I agree. It's a very charming SUV. Uh, I think that there are probably newer, better choices in the segment, but they've done, like I said, enough to keep it up to date. And I think it's great. I think there's, you know, not a whole lot to complain about. Right. Uh, a lot of its competitors are a lot more expensive. So I think this is the bargain buy among luxuries. And uh, so something to take a look at. Uh, good infotainment. 12.3-inch infotainment screen, navigation, as I say, wire, uh, wireless Apple CarPlay, but Android Auto requires a USB connection. Good safety equipment? I like. So uh, something to take a look at if you are a luxury large SUV shopper. Maybe not at the top of your list, but I think worth a look. <laughs> I agree. Uh, when we come back, our special guest this week will be Stuart Strop. He is executive director of EV Intelligence at J.D. Power. He's going to tell us all about how consumers really feel about buying an EV. Not just opinion, not just one person's opinion about what consumers are thinking, but actually what consumers are thinking. So we'll have him coming up and uh, stay with us for that. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. I got this letter from a reader the other day, and I thought I'd share it with you. I'm on vacation on the beach in Key Biscayne and just finished reading Dance in the Dark. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great plot and twists I never saw coming. You're really good at creating visual images. Congrats. You made my vacation all that more enjoyable. This is just the kind of feedback an author loves to hear. I'm Jack Nerad, host of America on the Road and the author of Dance in the Dark, a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many have told me that Dance in the Dark has all the realism of fatal photographs, my true crime account of the famous bathing suit model murder case. That's great to hear because Dance in the Dark is filled with suspense, plot twists, and surprises. But at the same time, it's a believable story in the tradition of writers like James M. Cain, Jim Thompson, and Elroy Leonard. Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and Kindle ebook form from Amazon.com. And it's available direct from the publisher emlancy.com as well. If you have a chance, please look for it. If it makes your vacation better, we'll both be happy. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arnie Red at Amazon.com or emlancy.com. Thanks for giving it a look. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Arnie Red with you, and we have a terrific guest uh, talking about something we talk about on the program a lot. Stuart Strop is Executive Director of EV Intelligence at J.D. Power. Stuart, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Great to be with you, Jack. Thanks for having me. 
Well, we talk about the consumer acceptance of electric vehicles on America on the Road uh, in virtually every show. It's uh, certainly big news. And uh, J.D. Power tracks this. You personally track this in the J.D. Power 2023 U.S. Electric Vehicle Consideration Study. Give our listeners and, and viewers a, a little sense of what the study does and what, what's the goal of the study. Sure. So we've been doing this this uh, EV consideration study, what we call EVC for short, for a few years now. Uh, we started it in 21 as an annual study and then, then again in 22 as an annual report. In mid-22, we added a monthly pulse component to it as well, which has been really interesting uh, we felt uh, the need to do that just because the EV space is, as you know, Jack, and the, the listeners will know, is just so volatile. Uh, and we've got so many models that are coming to market. Uh, and, and there's so much else going on uh, on a pretty frequent cadence in terms of, of uh, you know, announcements regarding charging networks and, and, and so forth. And we just kind of felt like uh, annual only wasn't going to cut it. So so we added this monthly pulse as well. So we're now at a point 23 where we have this monthly component and still this annual deep dive uh, report that we put out mid-year. And uh, what it what it really does is allow us to get a good read on how uh, EV purchase consideration is tracking across the larger U.S. new vehicle shopper population in terms of the, how they're thinking about EVs early on in that purchase consideration vehicle decision process. Are they even really just kind of thinking about EVs? And if, if so, yeah, great. Yeah, which models are they looking at? And, and just as importantly, if not, if, if, if they're really not ready to make that electric leap yet, why not? What what are those key key reasons for for reticence or even rejection, and uh, what could potentially be be done a, around those? So we're getting about two thousand responses every month, uh, and for this uh, this annual deep dive, what we really did for for twenty three was kind of aggregate the February through May of monthly data sets to give us a really nice sample size to work with, and uh, see what uh, EV consideration looks like across the country. Yeah. Well, what have you found? Uh, it, it doesn't strike me, having read some of the report, that uh, we're seeing a, a vast increase in the people who want to consider uh, electric vehicles or are pretty likely to. Uh, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Jack. That's really been one of the interesting takeaways looking at it in, on a year-over-year basis. It came in, and really one of the metrics we key in on quite a bit with the study is the very likely response. We allow these these new vehicle shoppers to select anything in terms of EV purchase consideration from very likely to somewhat likely, somewhat unlikely, very unlikely. We really key in on very likely because obviously that's the group that's going to be most primed to potentially move on down that funnel, actually purchase an EV uh, within the within the next 12 months. So for, for this year, that number in the annual deep dive came in at 26%. To your point, it's up. That's up from 22 when it was at 24%, so up a couple of points, obviously. Uh, but that's not the same trajectory increase that we saw from 21 to 22, and it actually went up four points. So really interesting uh, to see that dynamic playing out. Now, obviously, there's a a, a, a laundry list of, of really important variables influencing that uh, headwinds and, and tailwinds, certainly in terms of the headwinds, 
We've got things like gas prices trending down a little bit year over year. We've we've seen a very positive correlation between gas prices and, and EV consideration. If gas prices go up, lo and behold, EV consideration goes up <laughs> and, and, and vice versa. Uh, so those being down is a little bit of a headwind, interestingly, for, for EV consideration. But the big one, I, I, I would argue, is, is, of course, interest rates, uh, which have gone up multiples, as I, th- I think we're all very familiar with, with that dynamic and how that's been playing out and with where EVs transact in general in terms of price point, relatively high, whether in mass market or, or premium, uh, a lot of shoppers are going to be a little bit more sensitive uh, about the interest rate that they'll be paying uh, when, when financing uh, those those vehicles. So that certainly has been a challenge. But in the meantime, things that have kept it, you know, albeit on, on a little bit flatter trajectory, but still going up would be model availability. The, it's you know, As we talked about at the top, the number of EV models that are available to, to these shoppers uh, is seemingly increasing month to, to month, right? There's 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 new models coming out all the time. Inventory, we've had a lot of coverage uh, in recent weeks about how inventory is, is starting to build a bit across the retail network as, as, as well. Uh, and then, of course, you have the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which which certainly is, has, has had a key impact um, uh, you know, definitely during that first part of the year, those battery requirements, of course, kicked in in mid-April, uh, which has reduced the, the the breadth of coverage, if if, if you will. Uh, but nonetheless, that's been a that's been a key factor that I think is has uh, has functioned as a as a as a tailwind as well. As a tailwind, really, Inflation Re- Reduction Act, because a lot of there's a lot of confusion, I think, around tax credits, right? I mean, everything you knew uh, has changed markedly uh, around January 1st and then into the beginning of the year. Talk about that a little bit, would you? It's a great point, Jack. And it's really, there's really, it's been kind of fascinating to see how there are really two key elements that have kind of polarized the shopper population around EVs, where, you know, a lot of shoppers view these two things as as um, uh, reasons to uh, buy EVs, they're they're attracting them to EVs. A lot of other shoppers are are repelled by these two things. One of them is is charging, and the and the other one, of course, is is cost. Uh, so to your point, if we we've we have uh, a thing called the EV index at JD Power, which is kind of tracking this this uh, the progress uh, in terms of this path to parity between EVs and ICE vehicles across the whole ecosystem, everything from infrastructure to uh, upper funnel interest, um, vehicle availability, and so on. One of the things we track with that, of course, is uh, the affordability of these EVs. And we do it on a 100-point scale. Uh, and, and, and that metric that we're looking at, it, when, when it reaches 100, EVs effectively are, are as economical as comparable ICE vehicles uh, in terms of the total cost of ownership. Uh, net of incentives, uh, net of the differences in operating costs, and and so forth. We look at it over a five-year window for a purchase scenario and a three-year window for lease. In 23, really January on forward, we've seen that affordability score really improve pretty dramatically for EVs. And you know, there's there's a couple big components to that. Pretty major pricing actions. I think we're all familiar with a couple of big players, especially Tesla, has certainly contributed to that dynamic. But the other one would be the the Inflation Reduction Act, 
uh, and the fact that it is applicable uh, on, on a number of models, especially, of course, on the lease side of the equation with that Section 45W um, lease pass-through option, if, if, if you will. Well, which is essentially kind of a, a loophole in the, in the IRA, isn't it? I mean, I've d- definitely heard it d- described that way. It's, it's really interesting in terms of how, uh, yeah, of, of, of those eligibility requirements that are in place for a purchase transaction essentially are, are not in effect because it's really the, the leasing agent, not the retail customer who's actually taking on that incentive. And then they in turn can choose whether or not to, to pass some or all of it on to the customer as, as a, a cap cost reduction, a, a monthly payment reducer, whatever the case may be. Uh, but, but so it's interesting to see that when you look at the actual nuts and bolts, if you will, the, the, the dollars associated with, with these EV, EVs on a total cost of ownership basis, uh, the, the, that federal incentive has had a pretty notable effect. And yet, talking about how it's, it's polarizing nonetheless, to your point about the complexity of it, we still see in our data uh, in this EVC study that purchase price is still the number two reason for rejection behind only charging station availability as, as a key reason for uh, rejecting the idea of, of buying an EV. And uh, right along with that, we dig into that that rejector set of shoppers a little bit more, which is still about four in 10 shoppers at, at this point. Uh, and we can see that about 30% of, of that big chunk of the shopper population are telling us that they basically just don't have enough information to be confident enough moving forward with buying an EV. And a big part of that is the incentives, how they work, the eligibility requirements, how they're actually able to uh, have that incentive applied for their transaction, so on and, and so forth. So, so it, yeah, it's it, it's really kind of interesting to see how polarizing it's been. It's it's helped with a, a, a lot of shoppers in terms of, of choosing to move forward. Still, kind of holding a lot of other shoppers back. We'll be back with more from Stuart Strop of JD Power on American consumer attitudes towards EVs when we return. So, stay with us. Welcome back to America on the Road. We're glad you're with us. Let's continue our interview with J.D. Power's Stuart Strop on how Americans feel about EVs. It's interesting to me that uh, the price differential between an EV and an internal combustion engine vehicle, an ICE vehicle, is, is pretty plain to see. Sure. The charging infrastructure... Uh, I think is uh, can't be very transparent, especially to somebody who doesn't have an electric vehicle and never uses it. And yet that's the number one reason for rejection. Talk about that a little bit. I, I was kind of fascinated by that. Yeah, it, 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 it really is uh, quite fascinating. It's, as we talked about a, a moment earlier, that that is really probably the other biggest element in the equation that's been polarizing for shoppers. You know, we we know from our our data from our EVX uh, studies at, at JD Power, about 85% of charging is done in the home among existing EV owners. The, you know, the, the economics of that, the convenience of that can't be beat. So that's, that's you know, it's, that's, that's certainly very appealing to a lot of shoppers. And yet, at the same time, when we look at that larger shopper population, not only is lack of charging stations, the number one reason for rejection. If we look at the top five list of rejection reasons, four out of the five, everything but the one we talked about earlier, purchase price being a number two, the other four of those top five reasons all relate 
to charging, lack of stations, time required to charge, uh, range anxiety, of course. And then we've got about a third of the rejectors who are saying they, in fact, cannot charge at home or at work. So that still represents a real challenge in itself in terms of this, you know, sizable uh, um, sector of, of the shopper population who, who really don't have access to that great benefit uh, in, the, in the EV ownership proposition at this point. People, you know, particularly who are, who are in multi-unit dwellings and, and, and so on. I mean, people in urban situations, which strikes me as a a perfect situation in other aspects for electric vehicles, right? I mean, short trips, fairly low speed, all of that kind of stuff. Because they can't charge at their dwelling, because they're living in maybe a high-rise apartment building or parking on the street, something like that. uh, That's an issue, isn't it? I mean, uh, talk about that a little bit. It is. It is. I mean, it, it has consistently been in the top five reasons for rejection. It's about one in three of these EV shoppers who are saying they, in fact, are not going to consider an NEV essentially are citing that as, as one of the key reasons. And it, it's been uh, that that metric has, has kind of held steady there the whole time. So it, it's really not improving uh, per se yet. So, yeah, it absolutely does represent you know, one of the, the the key kind of most critical opportunities in, in terms of transitioning out of this early adopter phase more toward majority adoption uh, is to build out uh, some type of charging infrastructure that is going to accommodate people, like like you said, who, who, did, who do have residential um, scenarios that really don't accommodate a private dedicated charger available 24 seven in their garage or, or in their driveway. So that's, that's definitely a, a major, a major challenge that uh, obviously a lot of key stakeholders are, are fully aware of that and they're taking action on it. Uh, so, you know, certainly hoping to see that reflected in the data set sooner versus later. Right. And encouraging sign is um, affordability. I mean, you talked about the affordability quotient, and, and that's a good thing. But it strikes me that everything else really isn't changing very much. I mean, we're not seeing much movement. These these reasons are the same reasons that uh, people were rejecting three, five years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago. What's your take on that? Are we going to see improvements that are going to make this change or, or, or not? Yeah, it's, it's that is really a great point. You know, it's every time I look at the monthly data set, I'm hoping to see some more market differences in the data. And, I, and I'm sure that that will come. And, you know, one of the things where I think we are starting to see really significant movement already is around this this notion of of charging. Some of these um, announcements from some of these auto uh, automakers who, uh, you know, are, are, are in effect kind of creating a charging syndicate, if you will, around the, the North American charging system that, that was introduced by Tesla opening up access to their shoppers to that Tesla supercharger network uh, you know, is cer- for, first and foremost, certainly a great marketing uh, strategy. Uh, and you know, if, if they're able to work out some of the complexities around the hardware and the software that's, that's gonna make that seamless for their customers, it will you know, inevitably kind of prove out to, to be a, a, a real plus in terms of the ownership experience as well. But it's, it's interesting that when we look at the data in, in, in this study, uh, we ask EV shoppers to tell us which models their, uh, you know, is, would, would be their top choice and, and why. And of course, there's a laundry list of reasons that they cite in terms of why, but charging station availability as a reason to choose a model, I'm sure you can guess what the top models are 
that uh, in, in terms of, of, of shoppers uh, electing that as a reason, the top ratios for charging station availability as a Model Y buy are all five of Tesla's models. Even the Cybertruck, which isn't even on the market yet, of course, is getting credit for that. So point being that a lot of shoppers out there, you know, are, are kind that the, the, the supercharger network is resonating. Uh, in in their headset, and they in effect are, are kind of giving Tesla credit for having solved already for that really important part of the proposition. Admittedly, it's only you know about fifteen percent of of the use case. You know, it's not the everyday case. It's it's that road trip or that you know that vacation drive or what have you. But critically important to them, and and they do see Tesla as having solved for that. So it'll be really interesting to see what that does do for model consideration for Ford, GM, Rivian, Volvo, Mercedes, the list I'm sure is going to go on from, from here. Uh, that That is one of the, to your point, in terms of things maybe finally starting to shake loose a bit, a little bit here or there, that seems to be one of the bigger moves that, that we've seen as of late that, you know, uh, I, I would expect is going to generate more interest and uh, open open the market up a bit. Well, Tesla certainly is the 800-pound gorilla in this uh, segment of the market. But at the same time, I think uh, this study found that uh, consideration of legacy manufacturer electric vehicles is, is fairly strong, individual models. Can you t- tell us a, a bit about that, Stuart? Yeah, sure. To your point, uh, you know, Tesla clearly has has been, you know, quite dominant to, to date in terms of, of share of, of the EV market. Uh, and a, a big uh, component to, to, to that equation is that we're, we're very much in the early ad- adoption phase. So they, they've been very successful kind of appealing to early adopters, people uh, who are uh, really kind of proactive about, about making the electric leap, uh, really kind of found uh, Tesla's brand ethos appealing in, in terms of kind of kind of being a disruptor in the industry. Uh, not, not, not to, to, to say the, uh, the, the technology and the vehicle performance are critically important as well. They, they are also obviously that supercharger network. But yeah, as we continue to march out of this early adoption phase into majority adoption, uh, the calculus definitely is is different among your everyday shoppers who maybe aren't researching EVs in their free time necessarily. They're more kind of interested in having a reliable, economical way to get from A to B, to get to work, to get to to kids' school or, or whatever. Um, you, the the calculus is is a bit different, and you know to to that end, uh, at least early on in the shopping process. Some of their key drivers towards certain models have to do with the automakers and and the reputations that that those automakers have have rightfully earned o- o- over the decades and in, in, in this market. So you've got a lot of shoppers out there who are interested in EVs, but would really like to get them from automakers that they know and love, and and you know their family may have you know possibly driven for for generations at this point. So, and, and we see that in the data set uh, in terms of models from brands like Chevy uh, that are of course coming, uh, Toyota, Honda even, uh, with, with, with their entries, uh, the BZ4X, the, the prologue on the way for, for Honda, uh, l- relatively high levels of consideration for those models and, and referring back to the, those reasons why, those key why buys for model top choice, those brands get really high marks for affinity for the brand and prior experience with the brand. 
Well, Stuart Straub, Executive Director of EB Intelligence at J.D. Power, thanks so much for being with us. Always great to talk to you. I hope I can do it again soon. Absolutely. Always enjoy it. Thanks very much, Jack. And that was Stuart Straub of J.D. Power talking about the EV market and how consumers feel about them. Chris, tell us what's the latest from YourTestDriver.com. We have a lot of great content that just came out this week, Jack. We're doing a comparison of the Golf R and the Toyota GR Corolla. You know, I just bought a Golf R, so spent some time going into the finer points of why I chose it over the Toyota. I think a lot of people find that interesting. A lot of great content every week now, Jack. And look for that. And when you're looking at different stuff, you might want to check out my newest book, Dance in the Dark, a crime thriller inspired by true crime. It's available on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback form, uh, selling quite well. I'm happy about that. A great summer read. So take a look at that. Uh, If you like our show, please pass it on. Listen on this radio station each week and share uh, the time and radio station with your friends. And uh, remember, this show is available as a podcast, too, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, if you look at sportsmapradio.com on the Saturday morning schedule, you can find us there, where our podcast is also listed there on all the major platforms, as well as a formatted radio version of the show, if you prefer that way. Yeah, so check it out. Our thanks to the SportsMap Radio Network stations for carrying the show. And most of all, thanks to you for listening to America on the Road. And we hope you join us again next time for another edition of America on the Road. Hi, this is Jackie Rad, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him, He meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel, so he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at E.M. Lancey Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red. Thanks for checking it out.